And in terms of other announcement kind of things, the only thing I wanted to mention was that today at one o'clock we have a prayer time. An all church prayer session will take place today at one o'clock. <laughs> so if you want to go to class today and then run out and get something to eat since you're in the first service, then come back at one o'clock. We'd love to have you stay. We're going to meet in the fireside room today instead of in the auditorium. So one o'clock prayer time today. I really would love to have you come. The Lord would love to have you come. The Holy Spirit will be there meeting with you if you come at one o'clock to pray with us. And so I hope you come and meet the Holy Spirit and spend time talking to him today because he's going to be there. Now, if you want to turn in the Bibles that are under your seats to page 668 or in your own Bible to Zechariah, that would be great. Zechariah is on page 668, if I've looked at it correctly, in the Bibles that are underneath the seats. So turn there and just hold that for a second. We'll get back to it in just a moment. But here's the thing as we turn to Zechariah. Of all the minor prophets, I would say that Zechariah is by far the most difficult to understand. We're going to have a chance to understand Zechariah this morning, but you're going to have to do some of the work yourself by caring enough about God's word to kind of stick with me here. Because this is not easy stuff. It isn't easy stuff for anybody. And so it's a little bit difficult for me to stand up and say, here's the thing about Zechariah. Let's read through Zechariah because it's just not that easy. There are three things, in fact, that I would say are kind of keys to Zechariah this morning. And I want you to look at these with me quickly. One is, the prophet brings great news. But on it, God's people must act. Like, this is great news. I don't know if there's a minor prophet who is as positive as Zechariah. Zechariah has wonderful things to say about what God is doing through his people. It's a a great, great message, and it, it can be exciting. But then there is the admonition, there is the call at a couple of different places in this book to God's people, and and God says, I'm gonna do all this wonderful stuff, but you've got to act on it. In fact, he's really serious about them acting on it to the point where if they don't act it, act on it, on what he's going to do for them, he's not going to bring it to fruition in their own time. We'll see how that goes as time goes on here. Second thing is, just under half of it, Zechariah, I mean, is written in a kind of literature called apocalyptic. We're going to see that especially in the first six chapters. It's apocalyptic literature, which means that it's written in symbols, It's written in language which is not easily conveyed. We see all these symbols, all these fantastic creatures. This is like reading the book of Revelation in mini form. Or it's like reading Matthew chapter 24 with the the sun turning to blood or the moon turning to blood. I don't even remember which one turns to blood, but one of them does. And it's just a fantastic image here of these amazing events that God wants to communicate. But we have to recognize that it's apocalyptic literature. We'll talk about that again in just a moment. And then thirdly, you have to know how to solve riddles by means of poetic hints. You have to know how to figure out a mystery by means of clues. It's like figuring out the symbols on a treasure map. Some of you have seen the movies. In fact, there are two of them, National Treasure. There's two of those movies, National Treasure 1, National Treasure 2. And in it, in both movies, the characters are trying to find these incredible treasures, 
And they keep looking for all kinds of clues that have been conveyed in various means. So you've got ciphers that are there, and you've got riddles, and people find things inside bricks on Independence Hall in Philadelphia, and they chip away the brick, and inside there's a pair of spectacles to tell them how to read the map. On the back of the Declaration of Independence, there is supposedly a cipher, and they steal the Declaration of Independence in order to look at this cipher. Well, in order to to track with this movie, you've got to understand that these people are looking for clues, ciphers, hints. And in Zechariah, it's the same kind of way. There's all kinds of wonderful information in this book, but it is not easily ascertained. You have to know a little bit about reading some clues. So if you read this on your own, which of course I hope you do, you're going you're gonna to see very quickly that there are some things you have to look at and say, wow, what does this mean? And do some research to figure out what those clues might mean. And you're going to get, as I said, a beautiful message from God if you do. So here's the time period. This is way different than the other minor prophets that we've looked at. All the minor prophets we've looked at up until now have all been prior to the exile. There was really two forms of exile. One comes in 722 as the northern kingdoms are taken over by Assyria. The second comes in the second half, or the, uh, the second half of the, of the exile comes in 586, 587 BC when the Babylonians come and they take the southern kingdom. This, Zechariah, comes after the exile. Judah goes into exile in about 586. This is about 520 or so. It's been about 70 years that the Israelites have been in exile. And now they're coming out of exile. And Zechariah has some things to say to the people at the time when they come out of exile. Here's the slide that I showed last week. Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, all heading up to the exile. Josiah reigns 640-609. And then you'll see that, that vertical line out to the, is it to the right on you too? Yeah, okay. And it, it's, uh, it says that, you know, that's where the Babylonian exile takes place. And if I was to make another slide, which I didn't do, all this stuff's taking place after that vertical line. In fact, 70 years after that vertical line, as Zechariah begins to do some things, say some things to the people of Israel as they're coming out of Israel, or out of exile. So Zechariah is, in fact, speaking to a time after the Jews are coming back and a time when they are challenged now to be what God wants them to be. Because here's the question. You were like this before, your ancestors were like this before, and I had to send you into exile. Now, have you learned anything? Is there anything that's going to be different among the people of God as they come back from exile and start now, hopefully, living the way God wants them to live? Now, the fact that they're coming back is incredible news. It's fantastic news. But again, there's at least one guiding principle that the people need to watch as they come back and begin to live again in Israel. And that guiding principle we're going to see is in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. So I want you to look there with me, if you would. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And I sure hope you're looking at a Bible. Because you're going to get way more out of this if you're looking at a Bible today. If you're not... I'm going to be talking about things. You're going to say, what's he talking about? Look in the Bible and you'll see. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, now he's the Persian. The Persians now have taken over the Babylonians. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. 
Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now and the prophets? Do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? In other words, the prophets before me told you what you needed to do, told the people what they needed to do to live the way God wanted them to, and they just didn't do it. And the implication now is, it's time, folks. It is time for you to live the way that God wants you to live. Things can be different. Exile is not always going to happen if we just are what God wants us to be. And so there's at least this guiding principle or stipulation that comes along from the book of of, uh, Zechariah, and it's this. Again, the prophet brings great news, but on it, God's people must act. And if there's any principle in this book that kind of stands out among all the others, it's that. Now just think about that for a moment because this is not just a request from God to them. The fact is, this is a request from God to us. God has done great things. When we talk about the gospel, what does that mean? It means good news. It means God has done something wonderful in the person of Jesus. But just because God has done something wonderful in the name of Jesus through Jesus doesn't mean that we don't still have the responsibility of acting. And so this book is very pertinent. It speaks to us with all the wonderful good things, the blessings that have come down to us from God in Christ. That question looms. What are we going to do with this? It's a big question. It's an important question. And we need to keep asking it. Okay. So that's kind of the one big thing here. The fact that there is this kind of core message to the book of Zechariah. But he tells it through a series of apocalyptic visions. And I mentioned this already. There's the notion of apocalyptic which is present here. What is apocalyptic to begin with? Well, here a definition from Kelly about apocalyptic. It is, in fact, an otherworldly vision given in symbolic language to people who are in great need of encouragement. Now you just answer for me, church. Why is it that these people would be needing encouragement? They're coming out of Babylon. They've come back into Jerusalem and into Israel. They're going to rebuild the temple. And the prophet speaks in apocalyptic language, which is intended to encourage them. Why would they need encouragement? Tell me why. It is indeed. They get back to a country that was decimated 70 years before. There have been people who've been there still. There's some remnant left in Israel that have been kind of carrying along, but the place is by and large in ruins. That's exactly right. And they, there's just tons that has to be done in order for them to rebuild it. Rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. This is the whole time of Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, if you're familiar with that time period. What else could they need encouragement for? They certainly are. Like, those nations have not gone away. In fact, Persia could at any moment just decide to rescind uh, the sending of them back to Israel. 
Um, and it, at different points, this actually happened. But they could easily do that. They'd just say, you know what? Uh, bad move on our parts. I don't think we should let them go back there. And they could just take them over. And if not the Persians, then somebody else after them. And in fact, again, that is what happens. Later on, there are people, peoples who come and do the same kind of things to Israel as what the Babylonians had done and the Assyrians had done and the Persians in terms of being overlords. That happens to them throughout their history. Okay? So, yeah. Way to go, Steve. We'll see what Steve can do with the. Uh, is there any more? There's at least one more, Steve. One more that I'm sure somebody can come up with. Okay, that's a good one. I don't, you know, that wasn't exactly the words in my head, but that's, a, but that's perfect. The notion that God is with them indeed. And the reason that God needs to be with them, why they need him so badly, is because they're still tempted to be other than what God wants them to be. It's not as if all the temptations for them to be like the other nations or for them to just ignore the Lord, for them to be idolatrous and sinful in all kinds of ways, it's not as if that all went away when they went into Babylon for 70 years. It is true that they got spanked. They learned a lesson when they were in Babylon for sure. But did you ever spank your kids and then have them turn around and do the same kind of thing that you just spanked them for? Of course. Have we not all experienced some kind of trauma or whatever it is in our lives because we've made some mistakes and then turn around and make the same kind of mistake again? Well, of course. And Israel is tempted to do exactly the same kind of thing. So there's at least those three things that are still problems for them and for which they need encouragement. And God does indeed want to encourage them and not leave them on their own. And so he gives them some visions in order to encourage them. Now, there are eight of these visions. We don't have time to read all of these, but I want to read at least two of them. So I want to look at chapter one, verse seven. And this is just an apocalyptic vision. You'll you'll see all the symbol and all of that, but then watch for the great news that's here. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. And if you know anything about the book of Revelation, there are colored horses in the book of Revelation as well. In fact, the book of Revelation uses some of these symbols right out of Zechariah and brings those into the book of Revelation. Um, I ask, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, these are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, we have gone throughout the earth. And, and this is amazing. Listen to this message because you just think about the, the messages that are so often present in the prophets. Listen to this message. We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Wow completely different than what you would expect. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which, have been, which you have been angry with these 70 years? And so the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion but I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, 
and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, my towns will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Man, that is great news. In fact, I just want to ask the question, where is the great news in this vision? Tell me, church, because this isn't hard here at this point. What is it that we're reading? What do you see that is great news for the Jews and for Jerusalem? Just shout it out. Isn't that amazing? You know, this is like a beauty contest. All we want is world peace. And in this case, we get it. World peace is, in fact, he says, what is found. And again, this is a vision. Is it the fact that there's world peace everywhere at this moment? Well, no, there's not. Not now, not then, but the vision is of God being with his people and the notion is that there's a sense of peace about all of that. What else do you see? Mercy. Mercy. Specifically mentions mercy, God's mercy upon his people in direct contrast to what happened with the punishment where they go in for 70 years into exile. Prosperity is there. Yeah. There are other passages we read just last week where it says the, the vines are producing no grapes. The fields are fallow, not producing grain. Here, it's exactly the opposite. Prosperity is is the case instead. Anything else that you see? Yeah, God is going to return to Jerusalem. The idea is the temple is going to be rebuilt. God is going to be in the temple again. All of God's people are going to honor him and, and be in relationship with him because of that. All good stuff. Okay, we could go on. There's other things that we could cite. But I want to look at another one of these passages. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. A third vision. Uh, There was a second vision in between. This is the third one. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I asked, where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. In other words, he's going to bring them back after having scattered them. Come, O Zion, Escape, you who live in the daughter of Babylon, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. After he has honored me and has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. In other words, I'm going after those who injured you, Judah. I'm going after those who brought wrath on you. Verse 10, shout, And be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. And we could read on. So tell me now, church, where's the great news in this vision? What are some things do you specifically see in this passage that is, in fact, great news? Again, God is going to be present, just like in that previous vision. God is going to be present among the people, among his people. He will be their God. What else do you see? He's going to protect them. In fact, it says, I'm going to be a fire around you. Anybody who tries to get to you is going to have to go through my burning fire first. And of course, they're not going to make it. What else do you see? 
What's that? Revenge upon the peoples who have done something to Judah. Now God is going to bring his revenge against them. Well, again, we could go on. There's lots of great stuff here in this vision saying how it's just wonderful news about what God is doing with his people. Okay? The fact is, as I said, there are five other visions, six other visions than these two that talk about God doing wonderful things. He wants to bless his people now as they come out of captivity rather than um, constantly judging them because of their sinfulness, sinfulness as he has done in the past. Well, the prophet brings great news through these visions. We just need to keep in mind that God's people on these visions and on this great news need to act. In fact, let me see, uh, show you a specific statement of this. I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 7. I can start, uh, yeah, verse 7 says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. And that especially applies, of course, to those who are in a leadership position and to the king. If, if you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, he says, all these wonderful blessings he wants to shower down upon us. So there's a beautiful picture of good news here about what God is doing, but at the same time, there's the responsibility for the people to act. And we see that guiding principle again. Okay, then, the third thing I said that you need to have this morning is the ability to discern clues, to figure out mysteries, to look at riddles and decipher those. So I want to move on, and remember that I said this, you have to know how to solve riddles by means of poetic hints, and it's poetic hints which are a bit crucial here. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. And I, I was telling the group on Thursday night when we went through this in our life group, this is one of my favorite sections of Scripture. And it, it's beautiful, wonderful news for us who are, for those of us who are in Christ. And I'll show you why in just a minute here. Chapter 8, verse 1. And again, here's a, this is not so much an apocalyptic vision. This is just a vision. It's a clue into what God wants to do ultimately with his people. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. And by the way, there are 10 of these, this is what the Lord says. I won't read them all, but uh, there's 10 of these in this chapter. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord uh, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Okay? Notice just how positive that is. Incredibly positive. This is what the Lord Almighty says in verse 4. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with cane in hand because of his age. <coughs> the city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty? This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. Wow. 
Incredible stuff, especially in light again of the exile and all that they went through. Now that's all beautiful, but I want you to look at verse 20 because I think it even gets better. As we move in through these statements, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Look at, uh, uh, we come to another one in verse 20. This is what the Lord Almighty says. And I, 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 oh man, it's such a beautiful picture of what God's people are to be in our world. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. And I love this line, I myself am going. Like, are you going with me? We're going to go and entreat the Lord. We're going to go into his presence. Are you going with me? Verse 22, and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Oh, what a beautiful line. We have heard that God is with you. And so we too want to go up to Jerusalem. We too want to be in fellowship with you and then be in fellowship with God because God is with you. We can see that. Now here's a question. When is it that God has been most directly in the presence of his people? In Jesus. It wasn't just in the temple, but it comes in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ that God's people are most directly in his presence. And all of this sudden, this start to, to unfold this future vision, not just of what's going to happen with Israel, but specifically of what's going to happen with God's people when Jesus comes. And so in chapter 9, verse 9, there is a beautiful messianic prophecy that actually is quoted in the New Testament as speaking about Jesus. Look at verse 9 of chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice greatly. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea uh, to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, like doesn't that sound like our language? Because as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. It's just a beautiful vision of Messiah coming and present and God doing something with this wonderful gift that he brings to us in Jesus. Well, again, that's in chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. And it raises again a question for us, church. God's future was predicted, but it clearly comes with Jesus and in the Christian era. Why 
did it not come before with the restoration of Israel and Judah? Why did it not come to them? Like the prophets kept saying, this is going to happen to you. This is going to happen to you. I'm going to do this in Jerusalem. I'm going to do this in Judah. All these good, good, wonderful things are coming to you. And why is it that it didn't happen for them? Yeah, well, definitely. But here's the ultimate kind of answer, I think, and it fits with what Ron just said. Because God's people failed to act on it. And they tried to do and live out in some ways a worldly kind of existence before the Lord, but they never were what God wanted them to be. And we, on the other hand, in Jesus, do experience this new relationship with him, this spiritual kingdom that is ours in which we have relationship with God like no people ever before in the history of the world have had relationship with God. And so we have the chance to live out before him all those blessed promises. His presence and the righteousness and the impact on the nations where people come and they grab the the hem of one Christian and say, let us go up with you to worship because we have heard that God is with you. It's just such a beautiful picture of the way in which the kingdom has opportunity to be brought into our world as we serve and honor God the way he wants us to. We can have an impact on our world like, like we can't hardly imagine. Just as Zechariah describes. And then one last kind of question, and that is, what will we do? Because there is a responsibility here. There is a call. God's people are expected to answer this call. This is the one thing. Will we do what God has called us to do through this prophet? And ultimately, through that one who came riding on a colt into the city of Jerusalem. I hope you're all in. I hope you're all in. He wants you to be. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good to us. And this is great news that you have brought to us through the prophet Zechariah. You are not going to leave us alone. You're not going to banish us off into exile somewhere. We're not left here on this floating, rotating rock with no hope. Instead, God, you're going to restore to fullness your kingdom. You've brought your Messiah. You've initiated this whole process. We, by living in your kingdom, have a chance to take into our world your goodness and impact. Oh, God, help us to do that. Help us to see the places where we can sow a message about your kingdom and your goodness and what you're going to do with the future of our world. Help us to act on all of that. We pray through Jesus. Amen. I think it's appropriate uh, with the minor prophets. Paul says something like, to all of God's promises, Jesus is the resounding yes. Yeah.
And our response is, Amen.